Well, thank you again, music team. Grateful for your ministry and even the sacrifice that goes into being ready each week. Sound crew as well. Thank you so much for your work of service in our midst. And even the songs we've sung are incredibly appropriate in light of where we'll be. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. And so I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to John chapter 18. And we are, about, we are about to embark on a portion of John's gospel that is incredibly dark. A strong contrast from where we've been in John's gospel not that long ago. And to begin our time, let's go ahead and read this portion of scripture, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Again, it's just an amazing contrast. We go from experiencing a foretaste of future heavenly glory to the darkest hour in all of human history. When the powers of darkness, the very forces of hell, enter into an all-out attack on the incarnate son. In fact, elsewhere, to the band of arresting officers, Jesus says, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Luke twenty-two fifty-three. 53. It was an hour of darkness. And yet, make no mistake, though that be true, Jesus was in full control of the circumstances surrounding his death. Far from him being overpowered by the kingdom of darkness and forces of hell, Jesus was in charge of everything. And that means this, that when we come to this portion of John's gospel, and the historical narrative of our life's ministry on earth, what we have is 
as John MacArthur so aptly captures, we have God and Satan coming together on the same person for for two very different reasons, and God triumphs. Where the perceived victory of the forces of hell actually bring about its ultimate defeat and demise. And as we come to John's God-breathed, eyewitness account of the events surrounding the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, that's exactly what he wants us to understand. That Jesus was in control of every aspect of these events. And we know that not only by what John tells us, but also by what he doesn't tell us. Because though we find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, no mention is made of his inner turmoil that he had become deeply grieved, Mark 14, 34, or that he prayed three times, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done, Luke twenty two forty two, 42, and that he sweat what became like great drops of blood, Luke twenty two forty four. John doesn't focus on any of that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. All of that definitely took place, and it was certainly true, but it is also true that Jesus came out of that struggle, resolved and courageous to complete his mission and to drink the cup the Father had assigned to him. And that's what John wants to get. That's where he wants the spotlight to be placed. Now, John did record Jesus being troubled of soul earlier in his gospel. He did so back in John 12, verse 27 and following, where Jesus says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And so he prayed, Father, glorify your name. Where we see the very same resolve and courage of Jesus to complete his mission, even in the face of the the turmoil and trouble he experienced internally. And so as we come to this text, we're going to place the spotlight directly on the one deserving of our attention, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to do so with a view to ascribing to him the glory and worship that he is rightfully due. And what we're going to see is that Jesus was in charge of everything. He was in charge of the timing. He was in charge of his arrest. He was in charge of his disciples. And he was in charge of his mission. And so note first, Jesus was in charge of the timing. Jesus was in charge of the timing. Look at verse one. It reads, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So these events take place following our Lord's farewell discourse and his high priestly prayer. What's recorded for us in John 13 through 17. It's now sometime after midnight on Friday morning. And following the the supper that took place in the upper room on Thursday night. You'll note there that Jesus went forth with his disciples. 
that he went forth likely indicates that he exited the city of Jerusalem, the place of the upper room, and then crossed what the Old Testament calls the Brook Kidron, what is here called the ravine of the Kidron, a ravine that is essentially barren apart for a specific time in the year, winter, during the rainy season. From there, he and his disciples crossed that brook and entered a garden. What Matthew and Mark refer to as Gethsemane, which literally means oil press. It's located on the Mount of Olives. And Luke indicates that retreating there was his custom, Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. So the disciples would often be in Jerusalem and would be there for the Passover and all of the festivities and everything that they would be doing and would retreat to this location in the evening to potentially sleep there and find protection and rest from all of the busyness of the city. It was a location likely owned by believers who were supportive of Jesus and his ministry. And so he was able to retreat there and find solace with his disciples away from the crowds. And so this was his custom. It was his custom to retreat to this particular location. And that's the first clue that Jesus is in the driver's seat. Because verse two says, now Judas also who was betraying him knew the place for Jesus had often met there, met there with his disciples. So Jesus went to the garden and this particular garden, the garden of Gethsemane to be delivered into the hands of the authorities. He was walking into his arrest. Remember what the Lord said to Judas earlier that night. He said, what you do, do quickly, John 13, 27. And so Jesus went to the precise location that Judas would know that he would be at in order to be arrested and begin all of the events that would ultimately climax in him being on the cross where he would drink the cup, die, and ultimately rise again. Verse three, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so there are two different groups identified here in verse three. One was the Roman cohort, where a full Roman cohort would consist of 600 soldiers. Now, whether the full expression of this cohort was present or not is not entirely clear. It could have been a couple hundred of them. We know from Acts that Paul was actually being guarded by up to 400 men. But what is clear is that this was a complete failure to understand the nature of his mission. This was a fully armed band of officers to arrest Jesus as though he were a political revolutionary as though they were anticipating a, a fight or resistance. And yet Jesus was at this location to be delivered into their hands. And there was nothing about his ministry that would have signaled any kind of a political revolution. 
Now you might ask, why were they even necessary? Why were the Roman soldiers even present for this? And the reason is because all other attempts to arrest Jesus previously had failed. Every attempt to seize Jesus and arrest him failed. Even in John 7, for example, the temple police were sent by the Pharisees, the officers, to, to arrest Jesus, and, and they came back empty-handed, and they asked him, them rather, where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? And they said, never a man spoke like this. They were mesmerized by his teaching. And so the Roman cohort was there to ensure the arrest actually took place. Which leads to the second group, described as being officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. The temple police. And they're the ones actually responsible for the arrest. It's their responsibility to arrest Jesus. Because Jesus must first be tried in a Jewish court. Only after being tried in a mock trial in a Jewish court will he then be delivered over to the Romans to be crucified. Verse four, it says, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. He's in the garden. He knows what's about to happen. He may have been in a location of the garden that was somewhat secluded, knowing all things were going to take place, knowing the Roman cohort and the temple police were present, he went forth. And he did so knowing in advance all that was going to come upon him, the betrayal, the, uh, the arrest, the, the mock trial, the, the animosity he would experience, the scourging, his crucifixion, everything. And far from shrinking back from it, John indicates he went forth. He, he stepped right out into the open. And all of this is evidence that his hour had come. One of the overarching themes of John's gospel revolves around the hour. In John 2, 4, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. In John 7, 6, Jesus says, my time is not yet here. In John 7, 30, it says, so they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John 8, 20, it says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And then at a certain point, everything changes. In John 12, 27, Jesus says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. In John 13, 1, it says, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. And in John 17, 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. And when that hour came, he faced it with incredible resolve and courage, with, in, with tenacity and determination. He went forth and stepped out to face that moment head on. Now, it's one thing to die a martyr's death and to do so with courage, and there are many that have. But this was altogether different. Jesus wouldn't merely die a martyr's death, he would die a substitutionary death. He would go on to absorb in himself 
the unmitigated wrath and righteous indignation of God for the sin of all who had ever and would ever believe on his name, dying in their place as their substitute. He would experience on that cross an eternity of eternities of the holy fury of God, bearing our sin in his own body, becoming a curse on that cross, being made sin though he knew no sin. And far from shrinking back from all of that, he went forth into it, and when it was done, he declared, John 19.30, it is finished. So this was far more than a martyr's death. This was unrivaled resolve and courage, unmatched tenacity and determination. Jesus was in charge of everything, and he was in charge most certainly of the timing. Now second, Jesus was in charge of his arrest. Jesus was in charge of his arrest. Look again at verse four. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? He's taking charge. He knows why they've come. He wants them to be on record. He wants them to state their purpose in being there. Verse five, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And when he did so, he wasn't merely identifying himself as Jesus the Nazarene. This could be simply rendered, I am. As in, truly, truly, before Abraham was born, I am, John 8, 58. This was a declaration of his co-equality with God the Father. This was a self-revelation of his true identity as God the Son. And that'll be evident in a moment. It says there, rest of verse five, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So by this point, Judas was completely unmasked, even standing with the Roman cohort and the temple police. He had been now ousted as the traitor. John knew already, but now the the 11 know, the, the rest of them. And he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, Matthew 27, three. And was so despicable in his treachery, he actually betrayed Jesus with a kiss, Matthew 26, 49, and Mark 14, 45. Effectively solidifying himself as the most loathsome human being to ever exist. Jesus said of him, it would have been better if he had not been born. Verse six, so when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This was a remarkable display of divine power. The entire Roman cohort that was present there that day, along with the temple police, not to mention Judas, in response to this declaration, the declaration, I am, in total unison, drew back and fell to the ground. And you might think that in that moment, why in the world wouldn't they get up on their feet and get out of there in holy fear? Something akin to 
the clearing of the temple, when Jesus sent thousands upon thousands out of the temple in light of his indignation. Well, the reason is his hour had come. And so this manifestation of power was to demonstrate who was in charge. And as we'll see in a moment, it was to ensure that his disciples could leave in peace. And what this indicates is that the words of Jesus are divinely powerful. By the power of his word, he creates and destroys. Remember, in this week, he cursed a fig tree. He had come up to that fig tree. He had assessed that fig tree. There were leaves on that fig tree which should have indicated that it had fruit. He lifted the leaves on the tree. There was no fruit, and he cursed it. Symbolic of the curse upon Israel, because though she should have been bearing fruit by this time, there was no fruit, and she was rejecting her Messiah. He creates and destroys. He saves and sanctifies. He heals and damns, all by the power of his word. By the power of his word, he upholds all creation. All things are held together by the power of his word, Hebrews 1.3. Nations rise and fall by his word. All of human history is divinely decreed by his word. And that's because he is both the son of God and God the son. Co-equal with God, co-eternal, uncreated, sovereign over all things, ruling and reigning from the Father's throne, awaiting that time when he will come in power and great glory to judge the wicked and establish his kingdom. And even in the darkest hour, his darkest hour, he was exercising full control, demonstrating that he really was exactly who he claimed to be. Just consider the words of Jesus earlier in John's gospel. He says, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my father, John 10, 17 and 18. Jesus was in control of everything. The timing, his arrest, and now third, he was in charge of his disciples. He was in charge of his disciples. Look at verse seven. It says, therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And so by having them state it twice, they were now on record. Their purpose was to arrest Jesus. They were authorized to arrest him alone. That's it. And so in effect, had they come with a warrant for an arrest, it would only have the name of Jesus on it. And so verse eight, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. displaying that in the moment of his darkest hour, 
He is concerned for his sheep, concerned for his disciples. And this is the loving care of the Good Shepherd. Listen to his own words of himself. He says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. No one is more concerned about the sheep than Jesus is. And far from fleeing, he has stepped out into the open to walk into his arrest and ensure his disciples are free to go. And what he did here was a fulfillment of what he said elsewhere. Look at verse 9. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. So John identifies what Jesus did here as a fulfillment of his word and does so in such a way that he effectively places the word of Jesus on par with scripture. And even better, demonstrates his own consciousness that he was in fact writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and was therefore in fact writing scripture itself. And so what is this fulfilling? Well, it's fulfilling the essential essence of three verses. And you're gonna need to see these verses to really appreciate the significance of what John is saying here and the tension that is created from it. And they're rather familiar. These are verses that we have looked at a number of times throughout our study of John's gospel. The first comes in John 6 and verse 39. Turn there. In John 6, 39, verses that we have looked at numerous times, Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that is the will of the Father, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Notice the language there, but raise it up on the last day. A statement that declares the, the will of the Father that Jesus preserve his people all the way to the end, that of those whom the Father has given to him, he lose not one. Another comes in John 10, 28, another verse that we've looked at numerous times. There, Jesus says, referring to his sheep, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, notice the language, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Another statement declaring the eternal security of the believer by the preserving power of the Son. And the final one comes in John 17, 12, just a stone's throw from where we are in John 18. Notice what, John, what Jesus prays here. This is the high priestly prayer. He is praying to the Father, and he prays this. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So Jesus had guarded his disciples, the 11, 
And on account of that, not one of them perished except Judas, who wasn't one of his disciples and wasn't part of the gift the father had given to the son. And so bringing it back to Johnny 18.9 for a moment, to appreciate the significance of this, you've got to appreciate the tension because it would seem like John is saying that had Jesus not intervened and had the disciples been arrested along with him, that they would have been lost. Which is to say that their faith would have failed. And that's the implication that at that point, given the state of their faith, that had they been arrested along with Jesus, they wouldn't have endured it, couldn't have endured it, and would have perished eternally. This was an example here in John 18, ensuring the disciples can flee, an example of Jesus guarding them, John 17, 12, and keeping them from being lost. In his wisdom as the good shepherd, he knew they couldn't handle it. Think about Peter. Peter is about to wield the sword. Peter doesn't get it. He does not understand what's about to take place. In fact, recall what Jesus says elsewhere to Peter on this night. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter was sifted. His faith did not fail. And the reason it did not fail is because the good shepherd, the great high priest, prayed for him. So here's the point. If you could lose your salvation, you would. If you were the one entirely responsible to preserve your salvation, you would lose it. But you both can't and won't, not because of your faith, not because of the strength of your faith, not because of your ability to persevere, but because of the loving care of the Good Shepherd. Your faith doesn't fail because Jesus doesn't let it fail. Now, if you put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, this should be very comforting. The disciples were not ready for the testing that would come to them had they been arrested. At that point in their spiritual development, it would have been too much for them. It would have overwhelmed their faith to the point of destruction. So Jesus, as the good shepherd, and great high priest sovereignly keeps them from that, guards and protects them, and then will go on to strengthen them to make them ready to face that kind of trial in the book of Acts. But not here in John 18. And so if you're his and he's yours, you can know that he will never allow you to go through anything that would destroy your faith. And he knows what would destroy your faith. He will either keep you from it or he will supply you with the strength you need to endure it. 
But as the good shepherd and great high priest, he will never allow your faith to fail. Jesus was in charge of everything. The timing, the arrest, his disciples. And now fourth and finally, Jesus was in charge of his mission. Jesus was in charge of his mission. Look at verse 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. John is the only one who identifies the the name of this slave. He's the only one. A feature that accentuates this as an eyewitness account. And he's the only one who identifies Peter as the one who cut off his ear. And the reason John may have done that here is that by this point in time, Peter was with the Lord in glory. So there was, there was nothing that could follow him, no, no, no reprimanding of him that could take place at this point in time because he was already with the Lord. Couldn't be held liable for his actions. And though John makes no mention of it, Jesus went on to heal this man's ear. After rebuking Peter, he reached his hand out and healed the ear of this slave. A miraculous expression of mercy and compassion. But you have to ask yourself, what is Peter doing here? I mean, Jesus just secured his release. Peter's free to go, along with the other 10. So what is he doing in this moment? Well, I think he's trying to make good on a prior commitment. Back in John 13, 37, after Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And so Peter had written a check And he was trying to cash that check and make good on his commitment. And yet what he failed to realize is that he was now again attempting to stand between Jesus and the cross. He was resisting the self-humiliation of the cross. This was another Matthew 16 moment. This was a get behind me Satan moment. In Matthew 16, Peter makes that glorious confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then immediately following that, Jesus declares to them that he's going to be delivered into the hands of godless men and, and be killed. And Peter says, God forbid it. That shall never happen to you, Lord. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. You are set on man's interests and not on God's. And so Peter was still resisting and rejecting the self-humiliation of the Lord and his cross. He did in Matthew 16. He did in Matthew 13 when he refused the foot washing initially. Didn't want the Lord to, to, to wash his feet, this act of humility. 
He was doing it here now. He did not understand what was about to take place, which harkens back to why Jesus knew that had they been arrested and tried as he was, they would have been destroyed. So verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? There was a cup marked out for Jesus. It was the very purpose for which he came. And he was resolved to drink it. The cup in the Old Testament was often symbolic of wrath and judgment, as in Psalm 11:6, where it says this, upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Or Jeremiah 25, 15. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Anticipating coming wrath upon the nation. Only in both cases, as you might expect, the wrath was reserved for who? The wicked. Jesus was perfectly righteous. And yet he would go on to drink the cup of the Father's wrath on behalf of all who would ever believe on his name, where he would willingly make himself the object of the righteous, holy, indignant wrath of God and would be treated by his father as though he had committed our sin, though he was entirely without sin. He was born to die. This was the purpose for which he came. Peter was now trying to prevent him from embarking on that road. And so he rebukes Peter and poses a question, affirming his commitment to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. And when you consider what it cost to bring salvation to God's people, that Jesus Christ, the the unblemished son of God would have to suffer under the wrath of God. That is a guarantee. And let's call it a down payment on the reality that there is a wrath to come. You see, if, if Jesus had to endure that wrath, had to absorb that wrath for us to be saved, then if you go into death without Christ, then there is a wrath that is reserved for you that has not been absorbed yet. And that wrath will be absorbed in eternity, a never-ending eternity, 
where you will be under the just wrath of God for every violation of the holiness of God, every violation of his law, every sin, and will be under that wrath knowing full well that you are receiving justice for your deeds with a conscience that is active and actually functional in a place where Jesus says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's why you must flee the wrath to come. When the, when the gospel is proclaimed, it's an opportunity to flee the wrath to come, to, to flee to Christ, where he is your substitute, whereby he would be the one who has taken the wrath reserved for you and whereby you would be given everlasting hope that you will dwell in the presence of God, blameless with great joy for all of eternity, your sin being forgiven, Christ having been punished for your sin, justice having been served. You would have that if you come to Christ. You reject Christ, then you're going to court on your own. And when the judgment falls, there's no going back. It's an eternity of hell. And so when you look at the Lord's commitment here to this cup, let that be a, let that be a, a moment to encourage you that if you've not come to Christ, to flee to him today, to look to him who, who went to the cross, who did so with courage and resolve, tenacity and determination, who was in control of all of the events of his death, all of the events leading up to his death, and went to that cross and, and suffered under the wrath of God, did so knowingly, willingly, as a champion, absorbed that wrath in himself, atoned for sin, died, rose again on the third day, ascended to the right hand of God, and is now there awaiting that time when he will return to bring salvation and judgment and kingdom. And so believe on him this day. How could you have a, a clear moment of reality than this moment right now to understand life and death as it really is, heaven and hell, Believe on him this day and be saved. Jesus was in charge of everything. The timing of his death, the circumstances of his arrest, the preservation of his disciples, the execution of his mission. And if he was in charge of everything in his darkest hour, he is most certainly in charge of everything now as he reigns over all of creation, both seen and unseen from his father's throne. And all we can do is say, hallelujah, what a savior. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, we acknowledge that These 11 verses are not verses that we would ever choose to go through if we were just picking portions of scripture from week to week. 
And it would be so easy to pass over them and miss the significance and the depth and richness of all that both you and John intended for us to understand. And so, Father, we thank you for it. The matchless glory of Christ, his resolve, his courage, his tenacity, determination, his being in charge of everything. And so, Father, we give you glory and praise. We worship you, we worship him. Help us now to sing, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.